Welcome to episode 97 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. It's falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Feels like it's been ages since I've seen you. <laughs> since we were we've together just, yesterday. I was going to say, we've just come off. Three gorgeous beach casts. Yes. Well, four if you count the little hike, the sea lion hike. Oh, that's true. The sea lion excursion, which yes. proved to be both treacherous and elusive. And futile. Yeah. I mean, there. did you see the one that was no. kind of out there on that rock? I was oh, off on my that. own trying to find sea lions and the sea lions found you guys and I wasn't there. I have this picture of the one that we quote unquote saw, but it was so far away that the image just kind of looks like a rock. Yeah, I have a picture that Ashley took of Jen, your wife, running to try to get a picture of the sea lion. (laughs) And you can just barely see the sea lion in the distance, but you can see your wife running across the rocks. I don't know how she did that without like breaking an ankle. That place is treacherous. That's really great. So you've got an image of somebody trying to capture an image of the sea lion. Yeah. Well, the, the sea lion is in there, too. You can see that it's clearly a sea lion um, or a rock shaped like a sea lion, I suppose, is possible. Yeah, my image is not particularly good. But what are you going to do? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get into some affirmations and denials, and then let's rock and roll with some her- heresy cast tonight. Did you almost say Harry cast? I almost said Harry Carey cast, which is a different thing. <laughs> it's a totally different cast. Yes, a very How different How about you go podcast. first? Hit me with one of your affirmations. So I, I um, on my last, I think it was the last full episode we recorded, I mentioned that Christ the Center on Reformed Forums has been a little bit technical and it's been sort of like tiresome for some people. And we were saying that in the context of like promoting their Pro- Proclaiming Christ podcast that they right. also do. But they recently did a technical uh, episode, but it was on the impeccability of Christ. And it was just phenomenal world-class Christology. Just really, really good, crisp. World-class. Chalcedonian uh, theology. So everyone should go check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. But it was so, so good. That's great. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I actually listened to it twice. Wow, that is high praise. Yeah, it was really good. Fantastic. What about you? So this week, the affirmation is going to seem totally self-serving, and maybe it is a little bit, but I'm kind of just affirming a solid coffee mug that has a handle big enough that you can actually get your hand in there. And it's not like one of those things that's like cramping two fingers, and it's giving you all this stress in your arm because it's heavy. And that mug is actually a Reformed Brotherhood mug put out by Rooted Apparel. It is. The mug is awesome. I love my mug. It's a great mug, right? Aside from the fact that it's made even better because our faces are plastered (laughs) in beautiful clarity on it. It's actually a decent mug. That's why I knew this was going to sound self-serving. But if anybody wants to get in on that, and again, I'm just, it's a great mug. If you go to rootedapparels.com, you can pick one up. It's wonderful. You will not be disappointed because one, you're going to get our glowing faces and who doesn't (laughs) want two bearded dudes accompanying them with their morning coffee. On and the two, coffee mug. it's just like a really solid mug, isn't it? 
It is a really solid mug. It's good. You're right. Like the handle's good. The weight is good. It's 15 ounces, which is great because who wants to drink only 12 ounces of coffee in the morning? I don't know anybody that's satisfied with like 12 ounces of coffee. So it's a big mug. It's it's got a good weight to it. Um, and if you purchase one, we get a we get a little bit of a, a residual from that to help us cover some of our show costs. Win, win, win. Yes, all around. So denials, Jesse. Why don't you, you want me go to go f- first? Yeah, why don't you go first? Oh, man. So here's what I'm denying this week, and it's kind of on the heels of our time that you and I spent at the beach. Oh, man, I'm predicting we're going to have the same denial. <laughs> really? I think so we might. I'm just going straight after Hillsong United. Oh, All okay. the Hillsongs. Oh, man, Hillsong. <laughs> but especially the, the quote-unquote worship song, Oceans, which you and I have dissected, <laughs> at, dissected at length over the course of our time together. We and have. For which you put out, I think, a very epic <laughs> Facebook Live. Would you, would you just describe? Can you actually like send people to that? Is that recorded somewhere so they can see? Yeah, if in you're in the Reformed Pub, uh, message me and I'll see if I can find the link for you. Um, or I'll put a link in the show notes and you'll have to join the Reformed Pub to be able to see it. Trust but, me, you want to see this. But it's basically, worth it. I, I put YouTube and Facebook Live on my phone at the same time. And I played oceans as I was walking around in the ocean and filming like the surface of the water for like four minutes. <laughs> so it was it was a moment of uh, levity and ridiculousness that I, I appreciated very much. Yeah, it was beautiful. In point of fact, it's probably the most accurate application of that song oh, yeah. in that environment. The most appropriate that it's ever been played. Exactly. That's what I was going for. Yeah. Because my denial is really wrapped around the fact that everybody should listen to the actual lyrics of this because it's mostly ridiculous for the yeah. most part. It not just mostly, it's entirely ridiculous. It's entirely ridiculous. Yeah. So the the song is empty as was the content of my video. It was literally just me <laughs> panning around trying to avoid pictures that included people without their shirts on, like guys without their shirts on, because that is forbidden in the reform pub. So which is harder to do than you think at, at the beach to, to be able not to capture uh people without shirts on. So Yeah, I mean there there are people everywhere. So I know. So I'm denying, and you're going to laugh at this, but I am denying sunburn. I I love being at the beach. I love the ocean, but I have been miserable for the last day and a half since I got home. So Jesse and I and our lovely wives discovered that at this beach we're at, on the last day we discovered this, that at low tide, you can walk probably, I don't know, felt like probably about a, a good third of a mile out. And you still were only up to like just above your waist. And so we we got our inner tubes and we went out there and we floated in this like crystal clear, super calm water. Which and was then, amazing. Right. And and then I, I remembered that I, I didn't put any sunscreen on. So I got back and my chest was, I looked like a lobster. And now like, now I'm like all itchy and like I get in the shower and I've, I've had to take like cold showers. Not not for any reason that you might think, but because the hot water is so like painful to my skin that I can't <laughs> I can't deal with the hot water. So I think I'm coming to the end of it. It wasn't it was a lot less of a bad sunburn than you might expect, but like I'm I'm just it, it feels like it's come to the end of it. Now I'm just like golden brown. I'm I'm looking like a good like Thanksgiving turkey, but uh, it was pretty bad for for a couple hours for a day or so. I mean, that's where you want to be is, is looking like the underside of a chocolate chip cookie, but exactly. I, 
never really get there. I'm with you. I got burned pretty bad, and I've just been aloeing all over my body. Yeah. I have not been, but I feel like I'm on the I'm on the upswing of it. I had that thing happen when I was driving back, so we had like a three hour drive back, where I like itched my arm, and then like it, there's like a delay. It's like five or ten seconds, and then all of a sudden the the burn starts to hurt, and you're like, right. ah! so yeah, <laughs> you got that delayed sting. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It was pretty bad, but I guess that's the price you pay for enjoying the sun without uh, without sunscreen for a little while. It's rough. I thought you were just immune to the sun because you were pretty chill with the sunscreen. No, I'm just lazy and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was not anything about not getting burned. I knew I was going to get burned. Um, I just didn't. I just didn't do it. I'm a well, bad boy. Speaking of getting burned. Yes. We're, we got some heresy casts. We do. Coming up some, right here. Wow. That was pretty on the nose there. <laughs> Yikes. You are welcome. The Reformed Brotherhood does not advocate burning heresies or heretics. We do advocate burning heresies, though. Burning heresies. Yes. We're totally condoning that. Burn those all day long. So which heresy are we talking about tonight, Jesse? Oh, we're talking about, I don't want to say the granddaddy, but the one that gets all kinds of player attention. We got some Pelagianism tonight. Yes, Pelagianism. The big bad wolf of the Reformation was this sort of crypto undercurrent of... Pelagianism that the reformers Diddy. recognized and had to fight against. So right. Jesse, I always do this to you where I put you on the spot. And yeah, one, let's of these, do it. one of these times you're going to catch on. Can you give me a brief definition of Pelagianism? So let me say this about Pelagian and Pelagianism first, because so we've talked about a bunch of heresies already. And sometimes my impression is that those certain heresies come about because they're sometimes well-intentioned. They're trying to look at the biblical data and there's just a misinterpretation though it's well-intentioned. Right. This for me is different. And, you know, there's most of the shifts in theology today are not driven by new discoveries from archaeology or from the study of ancient languages. Right. They are most often driven by new philosophies that appear like in the secular world. And then there are attempts to achieve synthesis or some kind of integration between those philosophies and scripture. Yeah, that's And for me, this is where Pelagian falls. So it's particularly dangerous and pernicious because it starts with a philosophical underpinning or some kind of a priority critical element as opposed to going to the biblical data first and resulting right. in some kind of misinterpretation. At least that's, so for me, that's like a totally different kind of thing. So basically Pelagius, and you correct me, just jump in if I'm like totally off on my history, sure. but my understanding is you know, Pelagius was a British monk and he first, I guess, came on around the scene like 380 AD in Rome or something like that. And his interest seems, as much as I understand it, to be like to promote aestheticism. So this idea of withdrawing from the world as a means to holiness and that being the way to obtain justification and righteousness before God. So him and his associates were really drawn, I think, to like Jerome's moralist preaching. And so basically it's, it's this idea that I'm sure many are familiar with where there's something that we do essentially to um, promote our own salvation. And there's like a lot of nuance in that. It's kind of more than just an acceptance, but a, a coming before God and accepting him and his work in our lives to bring about salvation on our part. So there's a, it's a lot more to that, but is that like a fair, really high level definition? Yeah. So sometimes it's easiest to understand Pelagius and Pelagianism in contrast to Augustine and Augustinianism. True. Which right. 
particularly our audience as Reformed Christians, primarily Reformed Christians, is more familiar with because that's the air we breathe, that's the water we swim in. Um, and so Augustine's position, um, or Augustine, if you want to say it correctly, is that um, when Adam fell, now there's various ways to associate the, his posterity with um, him, but when Adam fell, every person following after Adam in biological, ordinary biological descent, inherited not just the um, the influence of Adam's sin or even the corruption of Adam's sin, but the actual uh, juridical guilt of Adam's sin. And right. so Augustine does frame this uh, somewhat in covenantal categories at some places, but the, the real strong covenantal elements of that would not really be... Um, would not be drawn out to their sort of most robust conclusions until the Reformation. But Augustine looked at it and said, well, obviously there's some sort of biological component. And so he, um, you know, he would, he would tend to, to orient that in sort of inheriting that from the father. And he picks that up, you know, he kind of, that's kind of where the Roman Catholic perspective of the necessity of the virgin birth comes from is that Christ had to be born of a virgin, so he wouldn't inherit this sin from his father. Um, I think Augustine was wrong on that, that it really is just biological descent, ordinary biological descent from Adam, um, places one under covenantal headship. But so so Augustine argues that um, everyone following Adam inherits the not just the influence, not just the corruption, but the actual concrete juridical guilt of Adam's first sin, which is simply what the Westminster Confession argues in the, the shorter catechism, the larger catechism. Pelagius, on the other hand, argued that there was no corruption that actually came about in Adam's first transgression. So right. not only did um, Adam's descendants not inherit that corruption, Adam himself was not corrupt in any sort of ontological fashion. Um, you can talk about this in terms of image and likeness of God and things like that, but for the most part, um, Everyone who's Orthodox recognizes there's some sort of corruption that comes about after Adam uh, that that enters into the human race that needs to be resolved. Pelagius, on right. the other hand, denied not only the the guilt of Adam's sin but the corruption itself. Neither of those things were passed down. So what's passed down and what what you might call um, like a Pelagian doctrine of original sin is that people have a tendency to sin exclusively because they observe the patterns of their parents before them. Now, now this isn't entirely irrational, right? We learn how to speak because we're exposed to the language of our parents. It's no accident that a child who's spoken to in English is, you know, entire child, child life is going to speak English or, or Spanish or whatever language it is. We learn to walk. We learn to do all these things primarily by watching and emulating our parents. So Pelagius argues that the reason that people sin is because they have this bad example in Adam of the, the chief sinner. And then that's compounded by each generation of sinner past that. And the conclusion of this is that there is no inherent guilt that any person faces. The only thing that a person can be held accountable for before God is their own actual sin. And so everybody is born tabula rasa with a blank slate. There's no inherited sin. And thus a person could if they lived a life of perfect obedience, actually merit salvation from God. And so the, the grace that God gives us is not some sort of aid to live that life or some sort of aid to overcome our shortcomings, but is the law itself. So God graciously tells us what's required for salvation or for us to, to merit eternal life. 
and that's the grace that he gives us is that uh, that law which shows us how to get there. But in terms of actually right. walking it ourselves or coming to that end, that's all on us. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, and and this is like we should probably speak about just how extreme this view is. So Pelagius held a creationist view of the soul. And what he meant by that is he was teaching that each soul is created immediately by God. So that, as you said, it does not participate in original sin. So in the Pelagian schema, there was also this presupposition that ought equals can, which basically is to conclude that justice. And he, Pelagian was really, I wouldn't want to say like obsessed with the, the moralist perspective on justice, but that justice demands that God may only require of us what we are freely able to do. Right. And generally, Pelagians will go to Deuteronomy 30.19, which, which reads, you know, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, this is Moses, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. So there's this interpretation of passages like that to imply that humans must have the ability to will the contrary relative to the divine will. So, like you said, on the other side, you've got Augustine, who is teaching that humanity was basically, I think what he called like massa peccati, which was his lump of sin, which right. I, I don't really like being called the lump of sin, but I also love that that's <laughs> how he describes us. Right. So, or in like the words of the Puritans, like in their little rhyme, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. Exactly. So, Augustine is teaching, like you said, this idea of what we'd later call total depravity, or I like almost better the words total inability. Yeah. So that humans apart from provenient grace, you know, the grace which works first, are unable to to will, to choose, to believe. And so the Pelagians, and there was like a lot of writing back and forth, not just from um, Pelagius, but also like Julian, who was one of his associates or contemporaries, right. had affirmed basically total freedom of the human will as a necessary postulate of moral responsibility. And that goes really against Augustine, really against orthodoxy, like we said, because in Augustine's view, one is guilty because one was in Adam. Right. And so like you said, we sin actually, we're only doing what comes naturally. So right. I think actually that when people think about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, it's been kind of this watered down, very kind of neutered and moderate version of this, almost like, well, we just accept salvation or we come forward on our own. But actually his view is far more extreme than that. Right. And it's pretty intense. And again, for me, what makes this very different is the underpinnings of it. It, It's very different. He was like a moralist. Right. And his idea of justice, this is basically an example of how a priori reasoning can totally infect a theological schema to the extent that it goes, it becomes heretical. Right, exactly. And so, you know, we, we should probably talk a little bit about what semi-Pelagianism is. And then also we need to talk about how that plays into modern day Arminianism. So, yeah, for sure. So we have, we have the, the Pelagian controversy and by and large, I mean, it's Augustine, right? Who's going to go up against Augustine and actually win the day? Not anybody, not in the early church, not now, not ever. And so everybody now tries to claim that their view is the Augustinian view. Nobody says, yeah, I'm a Pelagian. But the reformers particularly following, um, following after the reformation and in that area, they came up with a term that they called semi-Pelagian. And now this term gets tossed around a lot. It's it's kind of vogue for reformed thinkers to call Arminians uh, semi-Pelagian. And while there are some semi-Pelagian ar- people who would identify themselves as Arminians, a consistent Arminian is not – that's consistent with Arminianism, 
right? Arminians aren't consistent internally, but an Arminian who's actually holding to Arminian theology is not a semi-Pelagian. And the reason for that is what a semi-Pelagian believes is that Adam's fall did pass along a certain level of corruption into the, into the race. That there is a seminal corruption that occurs in Adam, and then in in that, his posterity as well. And so in the Roman Catholic system, in the Middle Ages, there was this little ditty that they said that you simply have to, um, you have to do what you can. You have to do, do what's within you, and then God will give you grace to respond to that. Right. Or in response to that. And, and what that's saying is that there's this part of the human condition. There's this part of the human creature that is not affected by the fall. Right. There was different words for it. For whatever reason, I feel like the word, uh, I want to say paracentesis, but I know that's not right. But there's there's a word that was used in the Reformation that basically is the spark within. Right. And they, they draw out the fact that in Genesis 1, um, that God creates man in his image and likeness, after his image and according to his likeness. And they want to say that those two things are different. And what's lost in the fall, according to the Roman Catholic position in the Middle Ages, was the image was lost, but the likeness was not. And right. so, uh, sorry, flip that. The, the likeness was lost, the image was not. Whichever it is, the point is that there's something in the human creature that is not corrupted and tainted by the fall. And so this view is called, by those opposing it, semi-Pelagianism, because that doesn't go as far as Pelagius to say that there was no corruption passed on by Adam, but it doesn't quite go as far as Augustine to say that there was um, a total corruption, that there's no part right. of the human creature that is left unaffected by the fall. So in the Reformation, they apply this primarily to Rome, but then legitimately they apply it to some Arminian and Socinian thinkers who want to say that all that's required of the human creature in order to to get God's grace is to take the first step. And that's really the key difference between Arminianism, properly speaking, and semi-Pelagianism, is that, as you said, Protestants, classic Protestants across the board affirm prevenient grace. Now, what exactly prevenient grace is accomplishing is different depending on which tradition you ask. But the idea between prevenient grace is that God takes the first step in salvation across the board, no matter who is being saved. Now, Arminians want to say that that first step is applied to all people. So their position is essentially that Adam's fall was total and that corruption was passed on to all of humanity following after him by ordinary generation. But God reverses that corruption in all people because of what Christ did on the cross. And so all people are returned to a sort of state that is similar to what we might call semi-Pelagian, but they're not there as a result of nature. They're there as a result of grace. Where the Pelagian or the semi-Pelagian is going to say that that state of of integrity, either total integrity or partial integrity, is a result of the natural constitution of post-fall man rather than some sort of gracious provision by God. Right. So in my view, the the expression of the difference between those two, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, and then the reform perspective would be something like the Pelagian semi-Pelagian view is concerned with making bad people good, primarily. Right. And the reform view is concerned with making dead people alive. Exactly. And there's a huge difference between those two. So you have, again, this moralism that's embedded in the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian view. That would be somewhat, I think, outside the scope of just strict Arminianism. And that's because the Pelagian view is really concerned about Christian behavior and was basically worried that 
the pessimistic Augustinian anthropology and soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation, would discourage good behavior. So Augustine's prayer of give what you command and command what you will seemed at least to Pelagius to totally strip humans of their freedom and moral responsibility. Right. So historically, it's basically been the case that those who have sided with Pelagius, and really there, I don't know, there are many now in terms of like a strict association, but what they have to do is they're, he broke the link. I mean, this is what's crazy to me. Broke the link straight up. The outworking of this whole schema is to break the link between Adam and us. Right. And when you do that, you must break the link then between the redeemed and Christ. And they've actually argued that just as one is not sinful in Adam, you have to, by the corollary, say that one is not righteous in Christ. So grace in this system only helps one to do what one could naturally do. It's not the essence of salvation. And I think that's what you were driving at as well. Yeah, exactly. There's a really big difference there. So this is not just some kind of like mundane difference of, well, who does what? Like I I do 50% and God hits the other 50%. They're making a really strong case that we are not in Adam and therefore we cannot be in Christ. Or it's there's no necessary reason to be in Christ because you can basically do it yourself. Right. If you just step forward. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, just I just want to take a step back here for a second. One of the things that reform folk throw out there frequently is the fact that Armenians are called heretics in the canons of Dort. And true. You know, there's 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 the simple fact that in in reality, what's called uh, heretics in the canons of Dort are Pelagians. But the canons of Dort are clearly associating the Armenian remonstrance with Pelagius's view. And so we have to be careful when we apply that statement, when we take that contextual statement in the you know 16th century, 17th century, and we take that and we, we pull it forward in time to a group of people that probably would not affirm a lot of the same kinds of things, or at least in the same way that the Armenian remonstrance did. So the, the, uh, the Synod of Dort is responding to a particularly aggressive uh, form of Arminianism, one that James Arminius would not recognize as his own view, right. and one that Wesley would not recognize as his own view. But there's this sort of intermediary view that the Remonstrants put forward in which the, the, all people are in a state of integrity. Now, I think one of the challenges is is parsing out exactly what that means and how that person returns to the state of integrity. But it, nevertheless, we have to recognize that most modern evangelical Arminians do not affirm the idea that mankind did not fall totally in Adam. Most right. of them affirm the idea that there is a total corruption of nature that obtains after the, the fall that is passed on genetically might not be the right word, hereditarily to all of Adam's descendants except Christ. And that the Holy Spirit reverses that by preven- by means of prevenient grace. Some would say that that's applied in the in the order of salvation for each individual. Some would say that it's applied on a more universal scale. So such that some people are born uh, after Christ. And so they never are restored because Christ has already sort of preveniently done that in them. But most would say that that, that, um, prevenient grace is applied in a believer's life in time in, uh, the ordo salutis for that person. That view is not semi-Pelagian. Right. I love Mike Horton. I love R.C. Sproul. I love all of these reform figures who have applied that to these people. But that view is not semi-Pelagian. Now, people like Charles Finney, 
Yes, that is a full-on, actually a full-on Pelagian view for faith. Yeah, it's straight He's saying up. that there is no original sin whatsoever. Right. But we have to be charitable to our Arminian brothers and sisters who want to say, on, on exegetical grounds, right, they're, they're trying to do faithful exegesis from the Scripture. I think they're getting it wrong, but they're trying. They're wanting to say the Holy Spirit brings all people to a place where they can genuinely respond to Christ. Well, what the Reformer are saying is, no, the Holy Spirit only brings those whom he chooses, and that's not everybody, to a place where they not only can respond to Christ, but they will respond to Christ in faith. So that's the primary difference. It's not necessarily the idea that we all start from a state of corruption. It's the idea of the universal scope of this prevenient grace. In Arminianism, it's, it's universal. All people are given this opportunity. In Calvinism, it's only the elect who are given this opportunity, and God ensures that they will follow through and take advantage of that opportunity. Nine out of ten times, I would say, for Arminian brothers and sisters, they're not expressing the semi-Pelagian view. Right. Like you said, there are some, but it's really unfair. It's totally a mischaracterization to naturally or just jump right to there and say, well, you're expressing something that's semi-Pelagian because they would be very uncomfortable with the underpinnings of that whole system. The only place where I see there's sometimes an overlap or maybe a carryover is this idea of fairness or justice. Because I have a really good friend who is a pastor of a large Brethren of Christ church in Canada. And he is a staunch Arminian. Actually, he was, at one point, he would tell you, a Calvinist. And he felt that that whole system was untenable. And so he became an Arminian. And what's interesting is him and I have some very candid and wonderful conversations just as brothers talking about these things. It's great to have these kind of conversations, honestly. And I remember asking him one time, so if we just look at the reality in which we live, you know, in the actual geography in which I reside, there is no doubt that where I live is far more privileged than even 30 miles away. It's a totally different environment. Right. And so I asked him, are you saying, or how do you kind of come to terms with reconciling the fact that even as we speak in our own worlds about opportunity, it's just true that none of us had the same opportunity. So that's either education or socioeconomic status or upward mobility in life or earnings power, whatever you want to say. But then when we bring in this idea of salvation, there's no way in the lesser things we have this kind of equality. So how do we have them in the higher things? And what I at least respect is he gave me an answer that was consistent, internally consistent with his theology. But I think you'll find the answer as unsatisfactory and maybe perhaps far from the biblical understanding as I did. And that was, he just said, well, God's going to grade on, grade on a curve. Right. And so the, the person that doesn't have exactly the same opportunity I was, God's going to understand, well, you, you did as best you could. And so this idea that everybody with their understanding of prevenient grace has essentially the table set before them and they just need to walk up to the table, but they're able to do that and everybody has the same opportunity is, I think, really hard to substantiate both in reality and and through the Bible. And so that, I think, is somewhat of a bleeding over from a Pelagian view, but I wouldn't go as far to say, well, that's straight Pelagius. But again, Pelagian was, or Pelagius was like really, again, all I can say is like he was really fixated on this idea that. I mean, he had this presupposition that there was a universal standard of justice to which all, even God are bound, was bound right. to. And this yeah. was flowing from this belief that, this, this further belief that justice required this absolute freedom of the will. So because God, if God is absolutely sovereign, then humans must be only puppets, which would deprive God of his justice by stripping humans of their freedom and their moral responsibility. So God is just, therefore humans must have free will. That, that was his whole argument and his rational and logistical 
a logical outworking of that. Yeah. So the problem I have with that is it, God isn't bound by anything. Uh, you know, like he is just because everything he does is just, we're talking about his righteousness, but there's a real problem there. And that goes back to, again, my thought of the Arminian is trying to interpret biblical data in a way that I think is trying to, I think, somehow reconcile the sense of they, they, want, they want to have fairness in the approach that everybody has the opportunity to receive and accept salvation. Right. Whereas Pelagius is basically saying, well, I'm, I'm, that's even too far for me. Basically, there is the standard of justice. Even God is bound to it. And therefore, everybody can on their own, using this grace, accomplish. But grace only empowers you to accomplish that which you were already able to do. It's kind of just like having the cherry on top, but you could get there anyway. Right. Grace just kind of gives you like the little extra nudge. But even that might be unfair because it's, it's, it's not necessary. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, when when Roman Catholics speak of grace, what they're talking about is a a sort of a a, a metaphysical substance or a metaphysical reality that's infused into the sinner that enables them to to live and to be in a different way. When Protestants, Orthodox Protestants, um, almost across the board, talk about grace, what we're talking about is a concrete disposition that God has towards sinners, which leads to specific actions on behalf of sinners. Right. When yep. a semi-Pelagian or a Pelagian is talking about, we'll say Pelagian, when a Pelagian is talking about grace, what they're talking about is the scriptures. The scripture is grace. God's commands are is grace. So, so in another sense, Pelagianism is a fundamental confusion between law and gospel because the law is the gospel in that the law is what God has given us in order to bring ourselves to salvation. So it's, it's important that when we, we talk about grace, that we have to recognize that among those different groups, different people mean different things. But grace is not something that is internal or shown to a sinner, you know, as an individual. Grace is something that God has done that is 100% external to every right. individual sinner. It simply is, all that it is, is revealing the standard that God uses in order to determine whether you are going to be allowed into heaven or not. It's pure law. And that that's something that I don't think we recognize is that in the semi-Pelagian model, grace equals law. That that confusion is all over the place. And and we see that a lot in some of our more modern contexts, right? We see like the holiness movement. The holiness movement has taken the law of God and has in a very real sense shifted that to be the good news, right? We talk, you know, we've talked. I'm going to ruffle some feathers here is, is we've talked about the Lordship salvation controversy. We've talked about Lordship salvation and the Lordship salvation controversy is fundamentally a confusion in the order salutis, but it is also a confusion between law and gospel in which obedience is smuggled into faith such that, um, in order to be saved, one must adhere to the law to a certain extent. Now, right. now MacArthur and those following him and, and that and those in that camp would vehemently deny the idea that the law is in any way meritorious, that we're, we're meriting salvation by means of um, obedience to the law. But classic Protestantism also denies that faith is meritorious. So we're not we're not meriting salvation by means of faith. Faith is the channel through which grace flows. And so the problem with the Lordship salvation folks 
and this actually flows out into one other area that I want to talk about in a minute, is that they've taken outward obedience to whatever law they're talking about. Sometimes it's the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's like the law of love or the law of Christ if you're in a more new, you know, new covenant theology flavor of it. Whatever the law is, whatever God's standard is for obedience, that's required for salvation. And so this semi-Pelagianism, this idea that prior to justification, prior to any sense of real spirit wrought transformation in the life of a Christian, um, repentance and obedience and surrender and submission is necessary in order for God to save you. Now, necessary, you know, has a, is a tricky word because yeah, we would say, well, it's necessary in order for God to save you, but it's necessary because it's a result of justification. Right. And so it's necessary as a, as a consequence where the Lordship folks are saying it's necessary as a precedent or an antecedent cause of salvation. And that's where the, the issue comes in. But I wanted to get your take on this other element where I, I think that I see this, this sort of semi-Pelagianism coming in is ironically, it's more prominent among Calvinists than it is among Arminians. In my experience is this idea of an age of accountability. Now right. I would venture to guess that dad never talked about an age of accountability because it's not biblical. It's not reformed. And dad is both thoroughly biblical and thoroughly reformed. But have you encountered in your, um, you know, your various churches and your various theological circles that you've run in this idea of an age of accountability or an age of innocence? Sure. I mean, I, I think that does pop up. I've seen that pop up from time to time. You know, especially in terms of the sacraments or in terms of baptism, right? Um, because generally, I'm I'm running in like the you know cradle Baptist crowds, and yeah, I'd say that oftentimes it's a matter of trying to discern when somebody is obtains like the age majority in the sense that they're properly able to make an expression that comports with some kind of intellectual assent of theological information and data, and that somehow in expressing that they're able to understand and discern that material, that this somehow corroborates or instills the, or makes effectual or efficacious the faith. I mean, to be point blank, right. it's, it's a matter of saying, well, now your faith is effective and worthwhile and active because you've come to some point of understanding. So, and that's probably generally because I haven't in my life attended a lot of straight up reformed churches. Right. And so I, you're right. I think there is a lot of confusion there. And that is just smuggling in some kind of Arminian or semi-Pelagian view, but also that's often some of the churches I've been a part of yeah. for whatever reason. So it's, it's consistent, but it is strange. I think though, a lot of times people don't have a problem with that because they don't actually see that it is sometime semi-Pelagian. And oftentimes maybe they don't even have a problem with it if you point it out. Yeah. So here's, here's where I think this rears its ugly head. I remember um, it was Todd Friel on one of the different shows that he's been on. It's the same show, but it's changed names several times throughout the years, depending on where he is. It's called Wretched Radio now. It used to be called Talk the Walk. Um, But he was asked, how do we think about infants who die prior to some sort of uh, ability to express faith? And his answer was more or less, and this seems to be the common answer among dispensationalist uh, sort of Calvinist flavored Baptists is 
that a baby who dies prior to the age of accountability or the age of innocence, I've heard it called both things, the reason that they don't go to hell and the reason they go to heaven is not because of some sort of salvific act on Christ's behalf, some sort of extraordinary act that God makes on behalf of these infants, but because they have not committed personal sin. And so, so the argument goes that an infant who dies in infancy and this is this is exactly how I heard Todd Friel explain it. Now, he may have changed his view since then. This was several years ago. But an infant who dies in infancy has inherited the corruption and the sin nature of Adam's uh, of Adam's fall, but has not is not going to be held accountable by God for the uh, the juridical sin of Adam's fall. And so right. since they've not reached an age where they're moral agents and they're not capable of of committing their own personal sin. They they go to heaven because they lack any sort of personal sin by which to be convicted uh, and and sentenced to hell. Now, when I first heard that, I just knew something was off. I didn't I didn't have the theological framework to kind of get my head around what it was, but it didn't seem right to me. And now that I've got I've got more of my feet my feet underneath me with the the reform tradition, that really is just backdoor semi-Pelagianism. And in fact, it's probably just straight up backdoor Pelagianism in a sense in that Pelagius denied any sort of transmission of guilt from Adam to his follower or to his, his descendants. He also denied any sort of corruption. So that's why I say it's, it may be more of a semi-Pelagian view. It's, It's hard to parse that out, but this idea of an age of innocence, which like I said, is strangely prominent among lots of, you know, quote unquote reformed Christians, maybe like lowercase c Calvinists or something like that is very prominent. John MacArthur himself holds a view like that is my understanding. And I hear that frequently explained that, that, well, you know, infants don't have any personal sin. So, so why would God send them to hell? And the answer I'm looking at is he sends them to hell because of Adam's sin. He sends them to hell because of the, the corruption of their own nature. Because the sin that they've inherited from their first parents in the garden, that sentences them, that destroys their perpetual obedience, making it so they have now, they are now parties who have violated the covenant of works and have to suffer those consequences. Now that right. sounds harsh. And, and I actually believe that all infants who die in infancy um, are saved by Christ. So I, I don't think there are any infants who actually are in hell, but, but the view that infants don't go to hell because they don't have personal sin that's just Pelagianism warmed over. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that is not identified by a lot of these figures. You're right. I mean, it's doing the very thing we just said about in, in like an actual sense. And that is they're entirely breaking that link, both biologically and legally between Adam and us. Right. So, and basically they're coming to the conclusion that the only way in which sin can be transmitted is through imitation of Adam's example. And an infant is incapable of that imitation by nature of their own physical and mental development. I've seen the same thing in terms of even adults who have some kind of large mental disorder or deficiency that basically they're saying, and, and it's interesting what you said there, because I think that some reformed when you, when pressed would say, no, what I mean is exactly what you said, that Christ saves them, that right. it is by his power and his gracious sovereignty that he can, if he so desires, reach down and save. That's what we're saying. But there are some, I guess, like you're saying that I haven't often heard that, but that is like a really crazy thing to say because it's, it's really bad anthropology, right? at least from a biblical perspective. And that goes back to what you're basically saying is that you believe in the same Pelagius notion of justice, that it required you know, him to deny the link between Adam and us. 
And then in order to maintain his notion of justice, he had to not only break that link between Adam and us, but also between Christ and us. And as a result, you denied the doctrine of original sin. Right. So I guess that you're right. It is some strange backdoor Pelagian action there. I mean, do you ever have a conversation with somebody about that and kind of bring in this doctrine? Or is that just kind of more of an observation? Have you ever actually had that kind of conversation with somebody like face to face? Yeah. I mean, it comes up in the reform pub from time to time when people Does it ask really? this question. Usually it starts off with somebody asking questions about what the reform view is. And someone trying to be helpful will put this forward and say, well, of course, babies don't go to hell. They don't have any personal sin. And then it, it you know, becomes a back and forth and it's a dog pile and eventually it becomes unprofitable. But, but usually we do try to get them to see, well, no, what, what you're saying is, is not consistent with what we hold to be true about the nature of man. If you affirm total depravity, which if you're going to claim to be a Calvinist, of course you do. If you, you affirm to. total depravity, then th- there is no age of innocence. The-, the age of innocence was before Adam sinned. That's the only age of innocence that any of us have ever known is that time period, however long it was before Adam fell. Um, Christ obviously has a perpetual age of innocence, but as far as the rest of us goes, there was never a time when I was innocent. And, right. and Augustine himself identified this, right? The very beginning chapters of uh, his confessions, not the Westminster Confession, but Augustine's Confessions, um, which is a phenomenal read. You definitely have to read it. He basically points out that a child will do whatever it needs to do to selfishly fulfill its own desires. It will right. scream and cry and it will, he will beat you. He will fight you. He will bite you. He will take stuff. You know, Matt Chandler, um, you know, Matt Chandler makes sort of a joke, but he's also being serious in one of his sermons. He, he talks about the fact that like he has never once walked up to his wife, shoved her on the ground and took what she had and screamed mine at her. So his kids didn't learn that from watching him. They didn't learn that from his bad example, right? He's right. never struck his wife. He's never bit her. He's never done any of those things that kids just sort of learned. They just naturally do. Right. Not the imitation of Adam there. Right. Exactly. It's not imitation. It's, it's internal, it's inherent in a human person after the fall to be self-oriented, to be selfish. Augustine actually said that the first sin that an infant, an infant uh, commits is the moment they draw breath, they're not properly glorifying and worshiping God. And so from the moment they're born, they have both Adam's sin and personal sin. And I think he's probably right, although I don't know that um, I want to go that far, but he, he's, he's on the right track there, is that the, the very act of infants seeking only their own good, we look at that and we think, well, you know, they're babies. That's okay for a baby. But there's no biblical reason to think it is. And David, David in the Psalms and Jeremiah, you know, the, all throughout the scriptures, there's talk of the fact that we're conceived in sin, we're born in iniquity, in our in our mother's womb, we are we are transgressors of the law. All of this stuff is prominent throughout scripture. So I, I have to, you know, the only thing that I can think is that um, it, it's got to be some sort of covenantal issue that that people like MacArthur and Todd Friel and, and John Piper and others who've advocated this view, it's a covenant theology issue and that they don't have categories to explain why it could be that an infant could be saved. They don't have categories, uh, the, the right categories of, of federal headship and things like that to, to account for that. And so they have to resort to these sort of non-covenantal arguments that really end up in sort of this strange place of, of 
they have more in common with an Arminian or with a Pelagian on this than they do with a reformed Christian. Um, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what to make of it other than to offer that as an observation. Well, like we've been saying before, this is what makes that whole experience so interesting because that viewpoint of just wanting to come out and say, well, of course it makes sense that infants go to heaven because they don't have any record of sin. That again is coming from a philosophical place rather than a biblical place. Right. Because you're not going to find that, like you've just said, you kind of laid out some of the arguments biblically. You're not going to find that articulated in the scriptures. And this is at least what I think the reformers did so well, beginning with, with Luther and continuing all the way through Calvin. Both of those guys, at least, realized that part of the problem with the Pelagius worldview was this, with this realistic theory of sin as opposed to a forensic understanding of it. So sin and righteousness are part of a moral category. And, you know, justice is one of God's communicable moral attributes. I mean, it's one of the attributes which he gives to us or shares with humans. But this realization moved them to strengthen the federal notion of union with Adam and Christ by moving to a forensic doctrine of justification. So, in other words, we are biologically connected to our first parents. We're all one blood. That's what the scripture says. But more importantly, we are legally identified with them so that we are reckoned as if we ourselves had disobeyed. When does that start? Like at conception. I mean, that that legal identity does, like you just said, never ceases to be part of who we are. So that forensic category is absolutely necessary in the case of Christ for obvious reasons. But working consistently from like a two-atom notion, these reformers in kind of contradistinction to Pelagius reason that our relations to Adam can also be considered forensic and legal instead of just realistic. Yeah. And you're right, our understanding of sin, and maybe this is just how sinful, like, isn't it ironic that how depraved we are is that we naturally want to go there to make it seem like, well, it's not fair for infants because I haven't done anything wrong. That also is basically just an expression of our full depravity that we don't even want to admit for a quote unquote innocent child to be taken into you know the the fires of hell the pit of hell even though that's what they deserved because they didn't do anything wrong yeah yeah and you know it just strikes me there might be some listening who are are kind of listening to this and thinking that this is a strange sort of a stance for us to suddenly you know be talking about infants dying and infants in hell and, and all of this and i just want to say unequivocally that the reformed tradition has always held encouragement um, for the salvation of the children of believers and right, different, for sure. you know, the different traditions handle it differently. Um, some in the Reformed tradition, and I think this is right, would say that all infants who die um, in infancy are elect and are saved by Christ. Others would be more restrictive and say we we don't have enough information to say that. But across the board in the Reformed tradition, and I'll, I'll I don't have I don't have the links in front of me, but I'll put them in the show notes. Um, across the board in the Reformed tradition. Um, there's been encouragement for parents who lose children, um, either um, after birth or preborn children that die in the womb, to say you will be reunited with your children again. So if you're listening to this and you fit that description, then then don't take this conversation as anything except a reflection on what we believe to be an errant view that doesn't account for the truth that we affirm. Right, exactly. Um, I, I just, That's you fair. know, I, I would hate for someone to listen to our show and to be kind of wounded by that when they already have a difficult, painful memory to deal with. So be encouraged no, if you've lost a child, um, you know, our, our confessions, and be, we, we say this because we believe this is what the Bible teaches. Our confessions um, hold that the infants, the children of believers 
in one way or another, Baptists and Presbyterians explain it differently, but in one way or another, we have good reason to believe that children who die prior to being able to reject the faith, they die in a state in which God saves them. So you will see your children again. I fully believe that. Um, I I wish that that wasn't sort of such a downer note to kind of wrap up on, but I I wanted to make sure we said that in case there was people out there who've, who've dealt with that. That's totally fair. And I'm glad you brought that up because I would even take a stronger stance to say that the Reformed tradition is really the only one that can provide that kind of encouragement right. with a clean conscience. Because yeah. especially, you know, my great friends who are Arminians, my brothers and sisters really struggle around that point because they have to do some theological gymnastics to reverse their previous opinions on like the age of accountability and the need to make some kind of profession and to understand enough to come forward and to make the first step toward right. Christ. And so they have to allow some kind of backdoor to say, well, but no, with infants, it's it's totally fine. Because like you said earlier in our conversation, the average Arminian is still going to affirm that the character and identity of, of every human has been tremendously compromised by sin. And so there is still an issue that needs to be resolved. And that's why there's beauty in the simplistic understanding, that the beautiful simplistic understanding, not, uh, I would say, the... Um, the you know like um like plain but simple understanding that god does can and does save infants like that is his prerogative he may do that because he's a great and loving and gracious god he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love his desire is to be merciful but that mercy comes not by way of him just absolving the punishment that's due but by actually taking on that punishment through jesus christ and so we say as you said Christ can and I think will save those children because he loves them, but he's able to do that because he has taken on the punishment and he may elect and reach down and snatch them. So they're saved secure. And that's a beautiful thing that I think comes out of the Reformed tradition. And that's why we can look to the biblical example of David, for instance, in his grieving over the illegitimate child that he has through Bathsheba, where he says, like, I will come to you again. Yeah. And that is really our firm belief. And notice he's not making a statement there. He doesn't unpack that theologically by saying, well, the child was innocent because it didn't do anything wrong. Right. There is just this underpinning, this firm understanding that he knows his Redeemer and the Redeemer has saved that child. Right. Just writ large and, you know, without any kind of qualification. Yeah. So I'm with you. I'm glad that you brought that up because I wouldn't want anybody to feel offended that what we're saying is, we're just making some kind of statement about, you know, children are automatically doomed. Yeah. In fact, we're saying the exact opposite. And really, I think the only tenable position on that comes out of the reform tradition and everybody else has to find some way to kind of circumvent that and come back to it yeah. in a way that compromises their other theological convictions on the basic synergistic mode of salvation. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that, that brings us back to Augustine and to Pelagius. Um, Augustine held a view that I don't, I don't think went far enough, but Augustine held a view that said more or less that the baptized infants of believers, uh, who died in their infancy were saved. And and he had a different mechanism to explain why that was, but it, it was tied to the covenant reality of baptism and the efficacy therein. Now, as Reformed Christians, um, and you and I would even hold a different view from each other on this, but as Reformed Christians, we hold that baptism is not what saves, but covenant faithfulness of God, right. that God's faithfulness to the covenant to save all of those whom he, cho- he chooses um, by 
substituting uh, on the cross Jesus Christ for their sins. That is the only position that can account for that. So Augustine held that that the infants of, of believers who were baptized were saved. And Pelagius didn't. Pelagius held a view that essentially left everyone's own everyone's salvation in their own hands. And now I, I don't know for sure whether Pelagius went so far as to say that infants, because they were not able to contribute any positive righteousness, were not saved. I don't know if he actually made that connection or not. But there's nothing within his view that would justify saying that infants who die in infancy are saved. Because it's not only the absence of sin that that is necessary for salvation, right? Pelagius didn't argue that you just had to keep from breaking the law because there's positive commands in the law as well. So I right. think you're absolutely spot on when you say that um, really only the reform view. And and I would, I would probably say the, the Lutheran view as well, although to a different degree and to, to in a, a lesser different extent. way, the, the, the monergistic traditions and Lutheranism by and large being um, an inconsistently monergistic religion or, or um, position, the, the monergistic positions in the church have always affirmed that God saves children who die. Um, and they're the only ones who can say that because all other positions place the salvation of man in the hands of man. And, a, a you know, obviously we would say no one can save themselves, but out of all of the people who can't save themselves, it's the babies. So, right. um, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism is not a heresy that you expect to crop up, but like some of these other, um, heresies we're talking about, it pops up in weird places you wouldn't expect. Some of the auxiliary doctrines or the, the things that exist around the edges of our system right? The, the eschatology of a dying infant or um, how it is that um, uh, a person with uh, restricted or lacking mental capacities, how it is that that person ultimately is saved or not saved, that's not central to our system of doctrine. But semi-Pelagianism still crops up there. So it's, it's important for us to always be vigilant, to always be thinking through the implications of our theology, to always be thinking through and knowing these heresies, because you can't spot them if you don't know what they are. And that's that's the reason we're doing True. this series, is to, to give people um, a, a rubric to look at. You know, we went through the systematic theology sections. We talked about what we believe is the, the right systematic theology to hold. And now we're talking about what's wrong, the wrong systematic theologies to hold. And hopefully with those two things, those two um, tools in your toolbox, you're able to sort of develop a sense where you can look at a position, a theological position, whether it's about infant salvation or whether it's about the creation of the earth or whether it's about same-sex marriage or transgenderism or whatever the topic might be. You're able to look at these positions that are being held and hold them up to what you have as a system of theological integrity and and make that comparison instinctively. That's our goal. Right, because it's important to remember that the end of all theology is that the men and women of God would be equipped in righteousness to serve God and to love others. And so by nature of that, what we're talking about here is really the giving feet of really good understanding of who God is and what he requires of us, both as manifested in the Order Salutis and in places like this, because you're right, I think that 
still Pelagianism pops up, but it seems innocuous because it doesn't come with the label and it's at the margins. Yeah. But you can see like with the example of infants, if you're talking with a good friend who has lost a child and they're really struggling over that, they're likely struggling over that because there is through, and I'm not trying to be disparaging to that particular person who's suffering through that, but there is a tendency because we start with the philosophical understanding of things like age majority that they're struggling with a Pelagian view that says, well, if this child could not on their own reach out and accept Christ, yeah. what happens to them then? Yeah. Where are they now? And so by being able to have what we'd consider a proper understanding of theology by way of this Reformed tradition, which we believe is the best expression and articulation and summation systematically of all this biblical information and data, you know, you can confidently say, yeah, they're with Christ. Yeah. And, you know, that's both internally consistent and externally consistent with the scripture. So I like how you kind of sum that up because I think what we're basically saying is this stuff has legs. Right. And it's not just a matter of like sitting back and like let's debate online or through chat or in some kind of, you know, very kind of, you know, way that's like, you know, armchair theology about yeah. these highfalutin ideas. We're talking about being able to speak the love of Christ into somebody's life yeah. in a way that is, you know, expresses true fidelity to the scriptures. And there's something so powerful about making sure that we respect the sovereignty of God, especially when it comes to things like saving children. Yeah. And so I, I just can't think of anything at the end of this, at the end of the day of this conversation. That for me just seems to be like a wonderful, consistent and practical outworking of what we're talking about here. It's not just about who has the best ideas and who can make their point and who knows the most fancy theological terms, but who can provide real love and comfort to somebody who's suffering because yeah. they understand the Bible fully. That yeah. at the end of the day is what I really want for myself. Yeah, that's a good word. Well, we are out of time. So uh, if you could go to rootedapparels.com and check out the products that uh, are being offered, not just our stuff, but uh, all sorts of different products, anything from our show to abortion ministries to veganism. Um, there's a whole range of stuff. Check it out. If you use uh, Reformed Brotherhood with a space in the middle as your coupon code, you get free shipping. But um, we hope that this has been a helpful and instructive uh, time for you and that this really just gives you a glimpse of how pervasive this theology, this semi-Pelagian and Pelagian theology is so that we can go out and we can serve our brothers and sisters uh, more and we can be more faithful and honor God uh, more with our lives. And if there's something that you want to throw into the mix here by way of a conversation topic or a question, there's still a little time because we're going to be doing question casts next week. So you've got some amount of time to kind of call us and leave a voicemail. That's the best way to get at us. And you have, do you have that number, Tony? I do. It's 607 four 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 two seven six seven bros i love your telephone voice yeah i i, your I even have a voice. telephone pose where i kind of like <laughs> is that what that have was have you noticed like i i actually like tip my head a certain way it's just it's just the way it is i did it was beautiful yeah well that just about does it this week folks until next time honor everyone love the brotherhood uh, what if i'm fine?